Well, good evening. It is definitely an honor to be here, and I'm glad I have the weekend tonight and then half day tomorrow and then Sunday morning because there's a lot to cover. We're still just going to be scratching the surface. It's nice to see a diverse age range, too. Um, I'm uh, coming up on a significant birthday soon. Two months from now, I am turning 60. I have never done that before, so I'm kind of <laughs> kind of nervous about it. It's just amazing how time flies. I don't feel 60. I feel 12. Um, but I've also got a lot of experience too, so I don't I don't mind getting older. Just getting closer to being my final destination. So, but I appreciate you guys being here. I heard a speaker once say, you know, he got up somewhere. And he said, "Well, before I I give my talk, I just want to say something." Like, does that mean when you give your talk, you're not going to be saying anything? <laughs> But I know, I know what, that, what he means by that because there are so many things I could say just that would preempt what I'm going to be presenting here tonight. There's a lot of background. And one of the most important things that I'm going to share before I get into my talk here in Genesis and the Authority of Scripture is, yes, we'll be talking about the whole creation evolution controversy on and off, but it's not about that. It's not about showing that evolution is false. It's not about showing that creation is true. It's not like you're going to die and stand before God. He's going to say, did you believe in evolution? No, I didn't. Okay, you're, you're good. Come on in. It's not about that. But a lot of people that I know, they're very well-intended. They're just running around all the time trying to disprove this and disprove that and prove this and prove that. It's really not so much about that. It's all about the authority of Scripture. That's what it's about. I came up with another analogy that I'm talking to other creationists about because they need to be aware of this. So you know the issues that we're dealing with today, and I have it in one of my talks, one of my slides talks about transgenderism and gay marriage and wokeism and cancel culture and abortion and just all these things. That's what we're dealing with. And then in the midst of that, you have some guys showing up saying, today we're going to talk about dinosaurs in the Bible. And you're like, Really? How is that supposed to help me with all these things that we're struggling with right now? It's so disconnected. It doesn't have to be disconnected. Every talk should really be about the fact that you can trust the Bible from cover to cover. That's what I want you to walk away with from this weekend, tonight, tomorrow, and Sunday, is that you can trust the whole thing and everything that it says. So when those important issues come up, you can say, hold on, let me see what the Bible says about that. And you can be confident that you know this is God's word. And they'll say, wait a minute, I don't believe that's God's word. And you'll say, you know what, I get that. And that's the actual problem. The problem isn't transgenderism or gay marriage or wokeism or any of those things. The problem is that the other people don't see the Bible as being the authoritative word of God. I'm kind of going into a whole other talk right now, but I, I uh, was a keynote speaker for two pro-life banquets out in Washington State last year. And it was really exciting I gave a very, very unique message, different than they've heard before, and they like doubled the amount of money they were trying to raise. And it wasn't because of me, it was because of how I approached the issue. Because again, typically if you have a, a pro-life Christian talking to a skeptic who's for, or pro-choice and you have pro-life going on, at some point the Christian might say, well, you know, I believe that God created life and the Bible says, and that's when the skeptic says, oh, you can't bring your religion into that, you've got to leave the Bible out of this. And way too many Christians are quick to say, well, okay, I, so I suppose. You do that, you're done. You're just toast. Because you gave up your only source of authority, your only foundation, your only starting point. See, the skeptic believes that the Bible is not the inspired word of God, and you believe it is. The skeptic would agree, if this is the inspired word of God, case closed. Abortion's wrong. But they say, but I don't believe that this is an inspired word of God. And that's where you should say yes, and that's really the issue. 
and you should get to focus on the authority of God's word rather than your philosophy versus theirs, arguing statistics and all that. Everything always should come back to the authority of God's word, and we need to be more confident defending it, but when we can't defend it, we give it up too easily, and then you're just done because this is your only point to argue from. So with that, as I'll talk before my talk, many of you don't know me from a hole in the ground, so I'm going to go over my background very quickly here. Um, that's me, and that's a hole in the ground. <laughs> so there are a few differences. I only put that up there. I have a very, very dry sense of humor. You have to tolerate for a little bit. Uh, but I was raised in a Christian home, and you can see very clearly that that is a Christian home. <laughs> and uh, I went to public schools all the way through high school. When I graduated a couple of years ago, I went to a Christian university, John Brown University in Arkansas, to study mechanical engineering. Got a degree there, but then I became more interested in physics. John Brown didn't have a physics major, so I left there, went back to Wisconsin where I live, and went to the University of Wisconsin-Whitewater to get a degree in physics. And that's where my world changed quite a bit. I went from a small Christian college where my engineering professors opened up every class in prayer to a large state university where my physics professors did not open up in prayer. Maybe they forgot, I should have reminded them. <laughs> but they were all evolutionists. Some of them were atheists. And they were telling me that everything I believed was wrong. And that made me very, very uncomfortable to be surrounded by those PhD scientists who I assumed had a lot of evidence for what they believed. But I realized for the first time in my entire life that even though I knew what I believed, I did not know why. How did I really know that God existed? How did I know the creation account was scientifically valid? That was huge studying physics. How did I know there was a worldwide flood? How did I know that Jesus was the Son of God? How did I know that the Bible is the inspired Word of God? I was raised to believe every single one of those things. And I did believe them. I just couldn't defend it. So God put it on my heart at that point in my life to start looking into things. So I've been looking into things for 38 years uh, and traveling around and, and talking about apologetics and defending the Christian worldview. So about 17 years ago, I felt called into full-time ministry doing this. I had my own computer programming business shut that down and went into full-time ministry. I've given about 3,000 talks now and traveled all over the U.S. and in eight other countries. It's a starting point project. Why do we call it that? Because everyone has to start somewhere. It's impossible not to start somewhere. Everyone, even an atheist, starts somewhere with their beliefs. Christians start with the belief that the Bible is the Word of God and God exists. God's created everything and the Bible is His Word. That's our starting point. And we use that to define everything else. That's a whole other talk that I'm not giving while I'm here this weekend, but that's where we came up with the name of the Starting Point Project. I was also invited along the way to be on the board of directors of Logos Research Associates. It's not a group called BioLogos. I just started putting the slide up there because I would say Logos Research Associates and other people would be thinking BioLogos. BioLogos is a group of Christians who are really, really pushing evolution in all the schools, Christian schools, Christian universities, seminaries, churches. They want everyone to believe in evolution, and they're getting millions and millions and millions of dollars to do so. Totally a different group. I'm not giving a talk on them, but I'm not referencing BioLogos. I was invited to be on the board of directors of Logos Research Associates. This is the largest group of scientists on the planet who are Christians and creationists. The founding member started at Dr. John Sanford. He's from Cornell University. He's famous for having invented the gene gun. 
inserts genes into the DNA. Worldwide famous for that. He was an atheist for much of his life. But now he's a very strong Christian, brilliant scientist, and very humble as well, very godly man. Then there's Dr. John Baumgartner. He's a PhD geophysicist. He just happened to build the world's best 3D computer simulation of plate tectonics. Just off the charts, brilliant. A couple of years ago, he moved here to, to Virginia. He's from California, but he's now teaching and working at Liberty University. It's kind of neat. But even secular geologists will use his model to see how plates of the earth are moving. So again, just off the charts, brilliant. So those, those two guys, myself and three other board members, as brilliant as these guys are, and they are really, really smart. If they were here this evening, they would be the first to admit out of all six board members, I am the tallest. <clears throat> so pretty proud of that. <laughs> Actually, three months ago, they asked me to become president, so now I have lost all respect for them if they want me to be president. But I'm, I'm president of this group, which shows that God has a sense of humor. But I'm just honored to be hanging around these guys because I'm picking their brain. They're doing cutting-edge research, and then I get to translate it into something we call English, so kind of fun to do. But we have a problem today. Statistics show us that two-thirds or more, probably more, of Christian youth will end up walking away from their faith before they leave college. That should be very alarming to everyone here, especially those of you who are junior high and high school. This is happening at an alarming rate. How in the world can something like that be occurring? There are a lot of factors behind that. Just one of them is a lot of these youth, they were handed a set of beliefs without convictions. Meaning they were taught the right thing, they just don't know why they're the right thing. Kind of like me. I was taught all the right things, I just don't know why they were the right things. Then they go off to college and their professors are more than willing to give them all these great sounding reasons as to why the whole thing is just trash. There's no way there's a God. Look at all the evil in the world today. In the Bible, it's outdated. It was disproved by science a long time ago. There's missing portions, extra stuff that got shoved in there, all these different versions, and on and on and on. And a lot of these youth are walking away from their faith. As I travel around speaking at conferences and churches and things, sometimes I'll see if there's a Christian school in the area, and I'll pop in there. We don't charge anything, so as long as I'm in the area, I might as well do as much as I can. I was at one Christian school, and this school went from kindergarten through eighth grade. And I was in there talking to the eighth graders because they were all getting ready to graduate to go on to high school. Every single student at this Christian school in eighth grade, they were going to be going on to a public school except for one. One was going to be homeschooled. The rest were going to a public school because where they were living, they didn't have good options for Christian schools. So I was supposed to help them with this major transition in life going from Christian school into the public system. And I asked a lot of questions. One of which was, how many of you believe the Bible is the inspired word of God? Every hand went up. That's great. Just not surprising. You're at a Christian school. If nothing else, out of peer pressure, they're all going to raise their hands. Then I asked another question. How many of you can tell me how do you know the Bible is the inspired word of God? Then it got pretty quiet. And then I got a few responses. These are the responses I got. Because it says it is, because I believe it is, because it was written by God, and because that's what I've been taught can see very quickly those are not reasons. I won't ask for a show of hands, but very likely many of you this evening would give a similar response to someone asked you, well, how do you, how do you know the Bible is the inspired word of God? I just, I mean, I know it says it is. That's my faith. I believe it. I feel it. Come back Sunday morning. I'm going to be addressing that very specifically, giving some incredibly powerful evidence that the Bible we have is inspired by God, cover to cover and everything it says. Really, really cool talk. 
And you can ask yourself, how would you or your children or even grandchildren respond to questions like these? You know, if God created the universe, who created God? And isn't evolution science and creation just religion? Why do so many scientists believe in evolution? Most of them do. Has science disproved the Bible? Can you really trust the Genesis creation account? And where did all the water go after the flood? Is there life in outer space? What about all the ape men? Was there really an ice age? Did God really create everything in six days? We'll talk about that tomorrow. And where did the races come from? It's been said that the heart cannot rejoice in what the mind rejects. If you're struggling with questions like those or others, how strong are you going to be in your faith? How eager will you be to share your faith with someone else? Are you going to start wondering, am I just fooling myself with all this Bible stuff? I mean, science keeps disproving it. I don't know, maybe I just need to have stronger faith. I'm just going to grip my teeth harder. I'm just going to believe it no matter what. Or bury our heads deeper in the sand and ignore all those things. A lot of Christians do that. And you can do that for a while, but eventually it just doesn't cut it anymore. And you end up walking away from your faith, especially youth during their college years. Then they run into quotes like this from Dr. Richard Rorty from the University of Virginia. <laughs> it's cool for me to share this quote because I'm actually, I guess I'm in Virginia when I landed, I saw a sign. Um, so this comes from your own state. And he said this, Secular professors in the universities ought to arrange things so that students who enter as bigoted, homophobic, religious fundamentalists will leave college with views more like our own. Students are fortunate to find themselves under the benevolence of people like me and to have escaped the grip of their frightening, vicious, dangerous parents. We're going to go right on trying to discredit you parents in the eyes of your children, trying to strip your fundamentalist religious community of dignity, trying to make your, your views seem silly rather than discussable. This is happening at state universities all across the country and around the world and public high schools. And our kids are not ready for that. Then they run into quotes like this from Dr. Ernst Meyer. He was one of the world's leading evolutionists. He said, no educated person any longer questions the validity of the so-called theory of evolution, which we now know to be a simple fact. Very dogmatic statement from a very intelligent scientist. I wouldn't debate that. The guy was brilliant. But there's a big difference between intelligence and wisdom. The Bible says the, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. A lot of those scientists, they don't fear God. A lot of them don't even believe in God, like Professor Richard Dawkins, one of the world's leading atheists. Very outspoken evolutionist who wrote the book, The God Delusion. Here's a quote from one of his other sources. He said, it's absolutely safe to say that if you meet somebody who claims not to believe in evolution, that person is ignorant, stupid, or insane, or wicked, but I'd rather not consider that. Another dogmatic statement from a very intelligent scientist. So how would you or your children respond sitting in a class where the teacher or professor makes a statement like that? I guarantee you, if they raise their hand and say, yeah, I don't really buy into all this evolution stuff, they are instantly broadcasting to everyone around them, I'm one of those ignorant people. I don't know anything about science. I just believe the Bible. Who's going to want to respond that way? I didn't when I was in grade school, junior high, high school, college. I was very shy and I couldn't really defend my beliefs. And again, many of our children and grandchildren, they're in the same position. They, just, they don't want to be singled out, be made fun of. That's, there's so much of that going on already with all these social issues. You know, this is just another one of those things that can make fun of them with. Well, we as Christians, we need to view everything around us that we call biblical glasses. See, glasses help us see things correctly correctly. 
What this means is, what does God's Word tell us about God's world? Whether it's astronomy, biology, geology, anthropology, the Ice Age flood, dinosaurs, whatever it is, what did God tell us about those things? But the idea of evolution, that implies that the Bible does not represent real history. You can't trust it. Well, if we can't trust the history in the Bible, that's a big problem for us as Christians. In fact, it taints how we see things. Look at these things here, the American Civil War, Napoleon's defeat at Waterloo, the fall of the Roman Empire, and World War II. What are those things? Well, those are historical events. Where do we learn about those? Well, typically in the public school system. Okay, what about these? Jonah and the whale, parting the Red Sea, Noah's Ark and the flood, Adam and Eve in the garden. What are those? Well, those are Bible stories. <laughs> Where did we learn about those? Church and Sunday school, and sometimes the Sunday school teachers will use a little of the old flannel graphs, and the kids can come up and stick the animals in the ark. It's kind of fun for them. One thing I've noticed about kids is if you feed them at least every other day, that's what my wife and I have done to save money, um, <clears throat> these kids eventually grow up, and they start thinking for themselves. And then they'll have a teacher who'll say, there's no way there was a worldwide flood. Do you have any idea how much water would be required to flood the entire planet? No, I didn't think so. And even if it was flooded, where did it all go? I'm looking around, I don't see it. And the students will think, ah, I never really thought about that. And the teacher or professor will continue. And how in the world did Noah get two of each of the millions and millions of species on that ark? Now, that's not what the Bible teaches, but that's what the teachers and professors think it teaches. So it's very easy to make fun of the Bible with that and many other things because it's not really what the Bible is saying. But they'll say that you can't get millions of species on that ark. And the students again will think, yeah, I hadn't really thought of that either. I know, maybe it didn't, didn't actually happen. It's just a, it's a story, right? It's a story to teach about whatever. I mean, Jesus told stories, right? So it didn't actually happen. It's just a, there to teach us about I don't know, boats, water, animals. It's a, okay, it's a cool story. Everybody loves the story, so don't knock it. So you, you kind of dismiss that. And then you dismiss something else. And then something else. And if you're going to throw anything out of the Bible, you're certainly going to throw creation in six days. I mean, come on. Nobody believes that, right? That's crazy. I mean, we got the Big Bang and radiometric dating and dinosaur bones and all that. That's what they'll say, and that makes sense. Like, well, yeah, I guess we can't really believe that anymore. That was just a story Moses wrote, because they would have never understood the truth. So he just kind of said this six-day thing, but it doesn't really mean that anymore. We know better now, because we have modern scientists. I'm going to talk about that in a lot more detail, very informative tomorrow when we talk about creation in six days. So you throw that out too. Well, what's interesting is pretty much every major doctrine in the Bible is founded in the book of Genesis. For example, we have the doctrine of sin. What is sin? Well, God created Adam and Eve in that garden. They were perfect, but they disobeyed God. That's what sin is. Sin is disobedience to God. It's founded in the book of Genesis. Then we have death. Why is there death in the world today? It's all around us. Where'd that come from? Well, God created Adam and Eve in that garden. They were perfect. They sinned, disobeyed God, and the consequence of their sin was that it brought death and a curse into God's perfect creation. The doctrine of death goes back to Genesis. Then we have marriage. Marriage is one man and one woman for life. It's highly controversial around this country and around the world, even in many churches. Where'd that come from? 
Well, God created Adam and Eve in that garden. He said it's going to be one man, one woman for life. It goes back to Genesis. Then we have clothing. I noticed you're all wearing clothes this evening. That's good. <laughs> this is kind of weird, but do you ever wonder why you put clothes on? Ah, sometimes it's cold out, you want to be warmer. But when it is like perfectly, perfectly nice out, why put clothes on? Because God created Adam and Eve in that garden. They were perfect, but they sinned, disobeyed God, got kicked out, that brought death and a curse into God's perfect creation, and clothing was a temporary covering for their sin. It goes back to Genesis. Then we have work. Why do we work? Because God created Adam in that garden. He says, Adam, I want you to till the ground, work the earth. Now, it got a lot harder for him after he sinned, but it was actually ordained by God right from the beginning. Then we have Jesus. Jesus is referred to as being the last Adam. If the first Adam wasn't real, oh, that never really happened. What does that say about the last Adam? And then most importantly, the gospel message. What is the gospel message? That Jesus Christ came, died on a cross, and rose again the third day. Why? Because God created Adam and Eve in that garden. They were perfect, but they sinned, disobeyed God, got kicked out, brought death and a curse into God's perfect creation, and the shed blood of Jesus Christ is the only permanent solution for that problem. The gospel message actually starts back in the book of Genesis. If we have problems with Genesis, errors, contradictions, never really happened that way, we have problems with pretty much everything we believe as Christians. In fact, if Genesis is not literal history with a literal very good creation and a literal Adam and Eve, then sin did not literally enter the world through their actions. You and I don't literally need to be saved. I hope you can start to see this Genesis stuff is kind of important. <laughs> it's not a side topic that some Old Testament scholars are into or some scientists. No, it is foundational to every single Christian. One more quote from another atheist. I think this quote is very disturbing, but I also think it's very logical. This is what he said. He said, Christianity has fought, still fights, and will continue to fight science to the desperate end over evolution. Quick side note. Christians do not fight science. Most major areas of science we have today were founded by Bible-believing Christians. I'll cover that Sunday morning. We're not fighting science. We're occasionally disagreeing with some scientists' opinions. Science is awesome. It's cool. We, we love it. You know, and it, if it weren't for Christianity, we wouldn't have modern science today. So we're, we're not fighting science, but that's what he's saying in the quote. He goes on to say, Because evolution destroys utterly and finally the very reason Jesus' earthly life was supposedly made necessary. Destroy Adam and Eve in the original sin, and in the rubble you will find the sorry remains of the Son of God. If Jesus was not the Redeemer who died for our sins, and this is what evolution means, then Christianity is nothing. I would agree with that. If evolution is true, as they teach it in the school system, we'll be talking about that in more detail tomorrow morning. If that's true, then Christianity is not true. If evolution is true, there wasn't an original perfect Adam and Eve in that wonderful paradise garden, but they sinned and ticked God off, and God says, oh great, now I've got to send my son to die on a cross. That didn't happen if evolution is true. Now, very, very many people put the two together. They say, I got the solution. God used evolution. Case closed. End of story. On the surface, that sounds like a great solution. Because then whatever the secular scientists come up with, you said, yep, that's how God did it. Yep, whatever you say, bring it on. That's I don't care. That's how God did it. It's easy to do that, but there's a problem. If you do any studying at all of science and do any studying of Scripture, 
The two don't fit together. And if you do put them together now, you really do have problems in the Bible, errors and contradictions and other theological issues which we'll be covering this weekend. So I know a lot of people very innocently just put the two together and think, ah, that solves it, I don't care. Say whatever you want. The two of you can get along just fine. It really doesn't work for, for many, many reasons. It's a whole nother talk. But Psalm 118, it's better to trust the Lord than to put confidence in man. 1 Corinthians 3.19, for the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. The most brilliant scientists we have, as smart as they are, and some of them are really smart, they still know nothing compared to God. And we need to trust God for what he has told us about his creation versus the temporal conclusions of some of these secular scientists who change their minds, they don't know everything, they make mistakes, get things wrong, sometimes even lie. And they are studying a world that is not the way God created it. It's been a curse that's going downhill. So when they're studying the curse creation and try to come up with conclusions, they're really going to be off many, many times. And that's what we see. Since we are dealing with creation and evolution here, we need to define our terms because the word evolution is used in so many different ways. For instance, they'll talk about the evolution of the phone, how it's changed over the years. And many of you are old enough to know, yeah, it's really changed quite a bit. They will call that evolution. I don't have a problem with that. You, they want to call that evolution? That's fine. That's just not what I'm referring to myself when I'm talking about evolution. And it's not what they're teaching in school. But you can use the term that way. That's fine. But that's not what they're referring to in the school system. I'm also not just referring to different breeds of dogs, about 350 breeds of dogs we have on the planet today. I'm also not just referring to different breeds of cats. I am also not just referring to different beaks on finches that Darwin got really excited about. All those things are facts of science. Nobody argues with those things. We know those things are true. But those things have nothing to do with evolution as they're teaching it in the school system. And it has nothing to do with what I am representing here this weekend. This is what I'm talking about, and this is what they're teaching in the school systems. 3.8 billion years ago, chemicals got together to form a single-celled organism, and that, that single-celled organism turned itself into every other life form on this planet over hundreds of millions and millions and millions, actually a few billion years. I call this a story. Not to be sarcastic or derogatory. To be literal. It is a story. They didn't see it happen. They're describing something, their guesses as to what they think happened millions and millions of years ago. So you could really call it a story. I recommend calling it molecules to man evolution. Here's why. If you just say you don't believe in evolution, the skeptic's going to think you are crazy because they're going to say, we see change all the time. Wait a minute, what just happened? Technically, it's called equivocation. It's where you set two things equal that are not equal. Evolution and change. Now, evolution would certainly involve change, but it's not just any kind of change. It's the kind of change that makes things more and more and more complex, more and more and more information going uphill. That's what it would require. We see change all the time, but we don't see that change where you're adding new information all along the way. Tomorrow morning, I'm going to be giving a talk that just blows people away about DNA. It's not overly technical. It's super, super cool. And you will walk out of that talk absolutely knowing why evolution cannot work and why you cannot just keep adding this information. So we see change all the time. 
but not the kind of change that evolution would, would require. But if you just say you don't believe in evolution, the skeptic will think you reject change, and they should think you're crazy if you don't believe in change. So you can say, no, I have no problem with things changing. We just don't see them changing in the direction that evolution would require. One other very, very important point, this next point is short and easy, but it's going to be one of the most powerful things that's going to help you sort through the whole creation-evolution controversy. It'll help you discuss it with others with much, much, much less intimidation. Here's the point. There are two types of science. Observational science and historical science. Observational science, sometimes you call it operational science, that deals with things that we can typically do in a laboratory. We make cell phones, fast computers, we find cures for diseases. It's great stuff. Creationists and evolutionists are not debating operational science. We know how it works. But too often the skeptic will say, you Christians, you creationists, you guys reject science, you just believe the Bible. That's not true at all. I already mentioned most major areas of science we have today were followed by Bible-believing Christians. So if you say you don't believe in evolution, it doesn't mean you don't believe in cell phone technology. It has nothing to do with that. But the other type of science is called historical science. And that deals with events that happen in the unobserved past. Like a supposed Big Bang, 13.8 billion years ago. Guess what? Nobody was around to see that happen. They can't reproduce it in a laboratory, and they can't test it directly. But guess what also? Same thing goes for the six-day creation account. None of us saw that happen. We certainly can't reproduce that in a laboratory. We can't test that one directly, because it happened once in the past. We didn't see it. Both of these views, Big Bang and evolution, or six-day creation, they fall into the category of what's known as historical science. Now, there's nothing wrong with historical science. It's just very different. It involves a lot of guesses and assumptions about things that happen when no one is around to see it. And different scientists have different guesses and assumptions as to what they think happened in the past. And you've heard it stated that the facts speak for themselves. <laughs> they don't. Every fact you have ever heard or ever will hear has to be interpreted to give it any kind of meaning. And the way you interpret facts is by using what you already believe <laughs> to look at some new facts and say, this is what I think about those facts. In fact, all scientists have the exact same facts because they're living on the same planet. They're looking at the same dirt and the same DNA. They have the same facts, but they're interpreting them differently, not based on the facts, based on what they already believe. And then they're going to use that to do their interpretation. For example, it is an absolute fact that there are many layers in the Grand Canyon. I could go there with an atheist and stand right next to him. We would both agree, look at those layers. We know they're there. That's good observational science. How the layers got there, that's another question. I wasn't there to see him formed. Neither was the atheist. So we're, we're looking at these layers saying, why, why are we seeing all these layers here? The evolutionists would look at these layers, at the facts, through a prism or a filter of man's wisdom. All the knowledge man has built up over the years, they would use that, look at these layers, and they would say, oh, that would take millions and millions of years of earth history to build up these layers. Or as a Christian or creationist can use the filter of God's word to say, you know what, this is exactly what I would expect to see. These layers we're seeing, that's what I would expect to see. Because the Bible says there was a worldwide flood. And a worldwide flood would lay sedimentary layers down all over the planet. 
And that's what we're seeing here. So these people are coming up with two totally different conclusions. Not based on the facts, based on what they believe to begin with. The secular views and one that's based on the Bible. Now, quick side note here, I actually lead tours of the Grand Canyon. Been doing it since 2015. We've got five going on this year. We've got information at the table. I didn't get here early enough to finish setting everything up, but there's quite a bit out there. Uh, even on the Grand Canyon, we've got brochures and all that. But the reason we take people to the Grand Canyon is not to see a cool hole in the ground. And it's amazing. How, how many have actually been there before? Okay. I'm going to ask another question, and probably very few of any hands will go up. How many of you have been there with a scientist who was a Christian who explained what you're seeing, all the layers and evidence for the Noah's flood? And one, maybe two, just a few. The rest of you just saw a big hole in the ground. <laughs> no, it's super cool. But after an hour, you're just like, it's cool. Two hours later, it's, it's just cool. <laughs> you take pictures, you go home, you show your friends, and you're like, yeah, it looks cool. It's like, no, it was, it was so much more than that, but the pictures don't do it justice because they don't. We take people there to talk about the authority of Scripture. The Bible says there was a worldwide flood. The Grand Canyon is one of the best spots on the planet to see evidence for it. So we spent a day on the rim. We spent a day on the river pointing all these things out. It's a family-friendly trip. It's not whitewater rafting and all that. And we're staying in hotels and everything. It's, it's a wonderful tour. I'm going to show you a two-minute promo video here in a second. But we take people there to fire them up in their faith because it, people come away, they just can't stop smiling. It is so cool how they could trust everything in the Bible, even the silly flood story. It's not silly. It's a fact of history, and the evidence is all around you. So I'll, I'll play the, the video here next. Welcome to the Grand Canyon. You've all seen pictures. Come and see the real thing. Jay Sigurd here with the Starting Point Project to invite you to come along on one of our Grand Canyon tours where you will be on the top rim of the canyon looking down, and you'll also get to be on the Colorado River. And all throughout our trip, we share scientific evidences that there really was a worldwide flood, just like we learned from Genesis 6 through 8. We know there was worldwide flood action, but not always the same way you see here. We want to take you from being in a position where you are praying and hoping that no one asks you about this flood story and Noah's Ark and all that, to a point where you're thinking, please, please ask me. Just learning about the creation theory and being able to really be equipped to defend that theory. A chance to learn a little bit more about just what God's done in the past and uh, his beautiful world that he created. The only explanation for the canyon is really catastrophic water action. Easy to understand, but yet profound. It helps me to articulate what I believe so much better. You'll be so excited about the authority of God's Word that it can be trusted from cover to cover so that you can be more emboldened when you're graciously sharing the gospel message with those around you. The problem isn't the evidence because facts don't speak for themselves. What was your favorite part? The dinosaur tracks. Dinosaur tracks? Yeah, it's pretty cool. It's unbelievable. You have to see it in person. It is an amazing place to visit, and we want to go on this journey with you, so get a hold of us to learn about the details of our trips, which you can find at thestartingpointproject.com.
So the trips are just absolutely amazing. Again, we've got a list out there, the five different dates that we're going this year. There's still availability on each one of the trips. One of them is starting to fill up pretty quick. But anyway, if you're interested in that, grab a brochure, go to our website, get some more information. Again, it's all about the authority of God's word. I've got to jump back into my talk here. So we, we just mentioned that there's a set of facts, layers in the earth, that they get interpreted differently. Here's another example. I'll back up here. The uh, skeletons. It is an absolute fact there are similarities between ape and human skeletons. That's a fact. Evolutionists would look at those similarities and say, see, that's proof or at least strong evidence that we have evolved from an ape-like creature because of the similarities. Christian can look at the same skeletons and say, you know what? That's what I would expect to see. See, they were designed by the same designer, carrying out similar functions. So I would expect to see similarities in their bone structure, and that's what we see. Once again, same facts, two totally different interpretations. But the interpretations are not based on the facts so much as they are on what do these people believe to begin with. Now, how many of you have ever heard of Rudyard Kipling, great children's author, wrote a number of great books, like How the Leopard Got Its Spots and How the Camel Got Its Hump? These are called just-so stories. It just so happened that this is how those spots got onto that leopard. They're very imaginative, creative, made-up stories for children, and they're a lot of fun. But we don't want to see just those stories in science. But way too often, that's what we see. Here's a quote from Geo Times. This is a secular publication talking about these just those stories. It says, evolutionists have physics envy. They tell the public that the science behind evolution is the same science that sends people to the moon and cures diseases. It's not. The science behind evolution is not empirical, but forensic. It's not the observational science where we're looking in the laboratory, we can see it, we can reproduce our experiments over and over and over. It's historical science. It's the forensic stuff. You know, if there's a murder that occurs two years ago, and now they're trying to figure out who did it. They can't reproduce the murder. They didn't see it. They're doing some studying now to guess at what happened in the past. That's what evolution is all about, even according to this secular publication goes on to say, because evolution took place in history, its scientific investigations are after the fact. No testing, no observations, no repeatability, no falsification, nothing at all like physics. I think this is what the public discerns, that evolution is just a bunch of just-so stories disguised as legitimate science. That has been my experience now for 38 years. There are a lot of interesting stories, but no real science to back it up. Very quickly, overview. We have just so stories about the origin of the universe. It just so happened 13.8 billion years ago, there's this massive kind of an explosion. It wasn't an actual explosion. Uh, it gets really weird if you talk about the Big Bang. Um, anyway, it was this expansion, this thing that formed the universe 13.8 billion years ago. I go into more detail on that in a few of my other talks. I just finished um, a fourth part series on our podcast about the origin of the universe. We go into the Big Bang and all those things. Leon Letterman, a Nobel Prize winning physicist, secular scientist, said, when you read or hear anything about the birth of the universe, somebody's making it up. He's not trying to say they are all lying about it. He's being literal. They're making it up. They weren't there. They don't know. They say, oh, maybe this happened. Maybe that happened. You have no idea how many different theories there are about the origin of the universe, including maybe it doesn't even exist. Maybe it's an alien simulation. Maybe there are infinite number of universes. Maybe the whole universe is one atom. And it goes on and on and on. When they have all those theories, you know what it screams? They don't know. 
So don't tell me the Big Bang is an absolute fact when you got lots of different versions of the Big Bang and some people say it never even happened and the universe doesn't really exist, there's a multiverse, there's just on and on and on and on. But I talk about those details in a different presentation. Then we have just those stories about the origin of life. It just so happened 3.8 billion years ago, dead, non-living chemicals came together to form a living cell. I love that story. Just no real science behind it. Oh, you read the technical articles and they get really technical and detailed, but it's not an answer. It really, there's, they're cheating all the way through. That's a whole nother talk. I'll talk about that briefly, I think, maybe tomorrow in one of my presentations. Ken Nielsen from USC said, nobody understands the origin of life, but they say they do. They're probably trying to fool you. They want you to think we're getting closer and closer to figuring it out. No, the honest scientists are saying we're getting further and further away because the more we study, the more complex this thing is. They're, they are literally getting further away from figuring out how that happened. It's not the Miller-Urey experiment, just put some hydrogen and, and ammonia and methane and stuff in there, and hey, you got you know, precursors for life, and it's so close to life. No, not even close. It's getting harder and harder for them. We have just so stories about the complexity of life. They say, yes, living things are always all very, very, very complex, but they just kind of happened on their own over millions and millions of years. A typical human adult has about 100 trillion cells in their body, and each one of those cells is more complex than the space shuttle. In fact, in a baby from conception until birth, the baby adds about 15,000 of these cells to its body every minute, and each one is more complex than the space shuttle. And inside the nucleus, that's where most of the DNA is, the DNA is like a very, 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 very complex blueprint with lots and lots and lots of information on it. In fact, if you had just a pinhead amount of your own DNA and could write out that information in a book form, it would reach from the earth to the moon 500 times. That's about 240,000 miles from the earth to the moon. And just the amount of information you could fit in a pinhead amount of DNA would span that distance 500 times. But guess what? That just happened by accident. Nature, particles banging together tomorrow morning. I'm going to talk about particles banging together. It's really, really cool. So the school systems teach this just happened by accident. In fact, they will take our tax money, teach our children and grandchildren they're nothing but an accident. Then our kids walk away. We say thank you very much. We are paying them to help our kids walk away in a sense. And you know why our kids are walking away? Because every single teacher in the public school system and every single professor at the state university, they are awful, nasty, rotten liars. <laughs> now, I say that with a smile on my face because I don't mean that at all. I think the vast majority of teachers in the public school system and professors at state universities are very nice people, and they're usually pretty good teachers. I personally don't think that they're lying to our kids. Unfortunately, a lot of what they're teaching isn't true. They don't know that. They're not saying, we know this isn't true, we're going to lie to these kids. No, they're just teaching the only thing they have ever learned. I mean, you, you, take, you take a typical public high school teacher right now, where did they go to school? They went to public schools. Then they thought, you know what, I love my biology teacher. She was just so cool. I'm going to go to college and I'm going to get a degree so I can teach biology. They get a degree, they learn more about evolution, they go back into the public school system, they get the book out and they teach it. They don't really have much of a reason to disbelieve it makes it sound plausible in the book. There's lots of things I could comment about that. The reason I bring all this up is we shouldn't maybe come down so hard on the teachers and professors. 
And we can certainly question and ask questions and all that, but don't think that they're rotten and they're the whole problem. They're not. The reason that our kids are walking away is because your pastors. Your pastors are dropping the ball. You see your kids get messed up and you bring them to church here and the pastors are supposed to fix them, right? And then they go home and they get messed up again, so they got to come back next week, right? Wrong. It's not the pastor's fault. In fact, you guys are very fortunate to have an awesome pastoral staff who takes Scripture seriously. Don't take that for granted. (laughs) That is a lost art in this country today. Uh, Christian pastors who are really dead serious about God's Word and don't dance around issues or write certain things off or ignore things. Seriously, be, be thankful. If you're attending here, be thankful for that. If you don't have it wherever you are, I, you come here. <laughs> um, but that's very, very important. So whose issue is it? That's largely ours as parents. Now, yes, our kids have responsibility for their decisions, but God does not tell us as parents, hey, if you get a chance, you know, maybe, maybe you could talk to your kids about this a little bit. No, he commands us to mentor them. And as we sit down and as we rise up and lay down and go to bed, all these things, it just means share life with them. It doesn't mean sit them down and give them a lecture. Been there, done that. It doesn't work. I'm a lecturer. So to get my kids together with my wife, if you could just sit down, just, it'll be five minutes, I promise. Just five minutes. Tori, can you put the markers down and just listen for a little bit? You know, it's just like, it was just a nightmare doing family devotionals. Lecture time from dad. Then I started just morphing into just sharing life with them. I was school today. What happened today? Really, what do you think about that? What do you think the Bible says about that? Just have these conversations. That we can do. And even if you totally dropped the ball till now, it's not too late to start doing it right. So we as parents need to step it up a little bit and invest a little bit more into the lives of our children. Life gets busy, but that's not not an excuse for us. So a little more detail I threw into this talk because I knew I'd have time. The nucleus of the cell. That's where the, most of the DNA is. If you went into one cell, just one cell in your body, and pulled out the DNA, it would be about six feet long. Super thin to fit in that about 10 micron nucleus. But just in one cell, one of the 10 trillion cells, pull it out about six feet long. And all the information to make your entire body is on that one strand. You could take a cell from the tip of your finger, pull the DNA out, it's got information to make your heart and your liver and your spleen and all that. But it knows, I'm not making a heart here, I'm making a finger cell. It knows where it is and differentiates and all this stuff. It's very, very complex. But six feet long and it's got all the information needed to develop your body and help you function as an adult. Now, if we were to magnify that nucleus, which is about 10 microns, you magnify it so it becomes the size of a basketball. Now that six-foot strand of DNA... Guess what? It's 27 miles long. So picture holding a basketball. That's the nucleus of one of your cells. And you pull the DNA out, 27 miles. And then you got to get it all back in there, wound up just right. You know, our cells do things like that on their own, but that's just an accident. That's what they're teaching us. Now, let's say you took out, that was one cell. Let's say you took out the DNA from every single cell in your body and strung it together end to end. Uh, If you did that, you'd be dead. So don't do that when you get home. <laughs> but if you did do that, string it together end to end, and let's say you wanted to walk from one end to the other. And we typically walk about maybe three and a half miles per hour. So you're on one end, you're going to go for this casual walk. How long would it take you to get to the end of your DNA? Hour and a half? Six hours? How about 27 days? No. How about 3,706,339 years? 
Seriously, that's how long, walking three and a half miles an hour, it would take you that long to get to the end of your own DNA. It's all in your body right now, coiled up in those cells. Your DNA would reach from the earth to the sun. It's 93 million miles. But not just once, it would reach that distance 1,222 times. And it's all in your body right now as we speak. So we, we got to go a little faster. We can't walk. Let's say you could go the speed of a rocket over 3,100 miles per hour. That's the speed the Apollo astronauts went when they went to the moon. I did another calculation. This is almost as fast as my wife drives. <laughs> Just kidding. She's a better driver than me. I can say that. She laughs. <laughs> but so you're going the speed of a rocket. How long would it take to get to the end of your own DNA? 4,180 years going over 3,100 miles an hour. This is incredible. We have to stop messing around and go even faster. How about Star Wars speed? The speed of light, 186,000 miles per second. Every second you're going 186,000 miles. How long would it take you? A hundredth of a second? A millionth of a second? Seven full days. 24 hours a day for seven days going 186,000 miles every second. Take you that long to get to the end of your own DNA. That's just, to me... That's pretty cool. It's cool stuff. <laughs> just those stories again. Got to keep moving. We have just those stories about the variety of life, the millions and millions of species that are on the planet today. How many of you have ever heard of the peppered moth? A few of you. This is one of the best evidences for evolution. So let's take a look at it. We have two moths up here in the bottom. The one in the rectangle is kind of camouflage. <clears throat> it's lighter color. The darker one sticks out like a sore thumb. So, the birds are flying over and they are picking off. Let me back up a second. The birds are picking off the dark-colored moths. So after a while, most of the dark-colored moths are gone. They're being eaten, right? There's a few of them. But the light-colored moths, they stick around. They're camouflaged. The birds aren't seeing those. So pretty soon we have a lot of light-colored moths, but very few dark-colored moths. Then the Industrial Revolution kicks in. Pollution goes up in the atmosphere. The trees become dark because the fungal growth on them called lichens dies off and gets darkened. So now the trees are dark. Well, guess what? Now the light ones stick out like a sore thumb, but the dark ones blend in very well. So now we have a lot of dark-colored moths, but very few light-colored moths. Here's proof of evolution. Now, if you don't quite get that, you're in good company. Because when I first heard this, I didn't get it either. I thought, wait a minute. Initially, we had light and dark-colored moths. Afterwards, we had light and dark-colored moths. And it's not like a light-colored moth evolved into a dark-colored moth, and even if it did, it's still just a moth. But the most interesting thing about this is it never happened. A scientist literally took dead moths, glued them to the trees, took a picture of it, put it in the textbooks, and told the story. It's still in many textbooks today. When our kids came home from freshman biology in high school and freshman biology at college, they said, hey, Dad, guess what they're talking about in school today? The peppered moth. Evolutionists have known for a long, long time. This is not really how it works. But it's such a powerful visual as proof of evolution, even though it didn't happen. That's pretty sad when one of your best evidences is something that never really happened. You just kind of like the pictures and can tell the story. Pretty sad. Then we have just those stories about the origin of mankind, how we've evolved from an ape-like creature over a six-million-year period. I have a three-part series that I talk about the origin of man and all those ape men and the fossils and all that's a whole other topic. I told you we're just scratching the surface here. There's no evidence we've evolved from an ape-like creature. The fossils actually do not support it and the genetics scream it cannot happen. 
like summarizing very, very, very quickly, every ape man you have ever seen or ever will see falls into one of three categories. Is either just an ape or an ape-like creature that they tried to make look more human. That'd be like Lucy, Australopithecus afarensis. Um, that's just an extinct chimpanzee that they tried to make look more human by having her stand upright and put human feet on her and human, human hands, even though uh, they didn't have those bones to begin with, but they just put human ones on it to make it look like it's kind of a crossover. Now they have the foot bones and the hand bones and they're long and curved like a chimpanzee, so they're kind of cheating on that. So that was one, a chimp or ape-like creature that they tried to make look human or on the opposite end, fully human, that they tried to make look more ape-like. That'd be Neanderthal man. This brutish Neanderthal man we've evolved from, no. They're not brutish creatures, fully human. In fact, today I think Europeans and Asians have 1% to 3% Neanderthal DNA in them, meaning in their past they were intermarrying with the Neanderthals and having offspring, meaning they were perfectly human. They have a few different physical features, but they're perfectly human, but they put them in the textbook looking more brutish, like we've evolved through them. But most evolutionists admit, no, they're, they're fully human. And the third category is a mix of the two human bones and ape bones put together, either innocently by mistake or fraudulently. And there's Piltdown Man and a bunch of uh, examples there where they knowingly put bones together from an ape and a human. Oh, here's an ape man. Oh, no, you put them from two different species there. So anyway, but that's a whole other talk. As I'm winding down here, we'll wind down this and then we will go into some Q&A. In my mind, we have just those stories about the concept of millions and billions of years. This one is a lot more controversial even within a church, even within very fundamental Christian churches. There are different views. Some people think, well, it says six days, so I guess that's what it is. And other people think, well, no, those days could be other things because a day doesn't just mean a day and a time to, with God is not necessarily our time and on and on. So those days could be millions of years each and so God could use a big bang and, you know, and it doesn't really matter anyway. I'm going to very, very, very tactfully address that in more detail tomorrow morning. I'm going to give you quite a bit of information on it, but I am not here to make sure you go away believing what I believe. I'm going to skip the details for now, but you're going to learn a lot. It's a really, really cool talk. You'll be more educated on that side of the six-day creation thing. You'll understand it better. I'm not here to tell you what you have to believe. I just want to inform you more, things that you probably haven't heard before, so that you are driven into God's Word. You pray about it, come up with your own conclusion, led by the Holy Spirit. But just something for tonight. Here's just something from science that is kind of a problem for the concept of millions and billions of years. We have the layers in the earth that we've been talking about, like with the Grand Canyon. We have something called polystrate fossils. These are fossils that go up through multiple layers. Okay, why is that an issue? Well, let's say this layer was laid down 200 million years ago in earth history, and then this tree started growing in that layer. And then apparently it stood there for millions of years as it's waiting for all the other layers to accumulate to bury it. That's physically impossible. The tree would have rotted away long before those other layers got there. And take a look at the bottoms of these trees. They're missing something. We like to call them root systems. These trees weren't growing there. They were growing somewhere else. They were catastrophically uprooted, torn away from the root systems, and rapidly redeposited here in a catastrophic event all about the same time. Sometimes we find these trees laying sideways. They weren't growing there, sometimes upside down. Here's an actual photograph of a polystrate fossil tree going up through many layers. We have these things all over the earth. This is evidence of catastrophic rapid deposition of those layers, like a global flood, not slow accumulation over hundreds of millions of years of Earth history. Mount St. Helens, I, 
I've got talks where I go into a lot more details on this. I gave a tour with some other scientists, uh, not last summer, but the summer before. So in the back behind me, this was from not last summer, but the summer before. That's Mount St. Helens that had blown out in 1980. Well, in 1982, there was a hiccup. <laughs> there was a little glacier up there that melted and we had a mud flow. So this is two years after Mount St. Helens blew its top. Two years later, you get a little bit of a mud flow on March 19th, and it formed a 140th scale Grand Canyon, 140 feet deep through solid rock in one day. A little bit of mud flowing, carved out solid rock. They call it the Little Grand Canyon. In fact, it did a series of canyons. That happened in one day. We saw it. That's good observational science. Catastrophic action in a short period of time. In fact, it made a series of canyons, this mud flow in one day. So that's Mount St. Helens. Let's take a look at Grand Canyon. Oh, that looks completely different, right? No, it looks pretty similar. Go back to Mount St. Helens. Let's put them side by side. <laughs> they look very, very similar. Well, if the one happened from a small mud flow in one day, why is the Grand Canyon millions of years of the Colorado River carving it out? That's physically impossible. Absolutely impossible for that river to have carved it out. Many reasons why the river didn't do it, and those are the things that we point out on our trip. Plus, I have a four-part series on the flood that's available, uh, and I'll talk about that in just a second. But we know it takes millions of years to form coal and oil, right? Slowly, Earth history and all this. No, you could form coal and oil in a laboratory in a few hours. It doesn't take time. It takes the right conditions. It takes organic material, heat, pressure, and water. Guess what the flood would do? The flood would bury all that organic material under all those layers, producing a lot of pressure, which causes heat, and then you got all the water from the flood. Those organic seams would have turned into coal seams in a very short period of time on their own. It doesn't take time, it just takes the right conditions. And we don't see those conditions occurring today, but with the flood you would have. So again, lots of issues. I'll talk more tomorrow about carbon-14 dating and stuff. We find carbon-14 in coal. Carbon-14 can't last that long. Carbon-14 can only last a few tens of thousands of years, and it would be just completely gone, like melting away an ice cube. If coal is supposed to be a couple hundred million years old, there shouldn't be any carbon-14 in it at all, ever. We have yet to find a single piece of coal on this planet that doesn't still have carbon-14 in it. And it just it goes on and on. There's so many other things. But wrapping it up, Psalm 119, 160 says, Thy word is true, starting right after the Genesis creation account. That's not what that verse says. The verse says, Thy word is true from the beginning. Genesis is the beginning of God's word. If we can't trust God for what he tells us about the beginning... How can we trust him for anything else? There was, I think, a nine-year-old girl once in a service um, during which the pastor said, Genesis doesn't actually mean what it says because you know, we've, we've learned a lot now. We know we, it doesn't really mean that. It means something different. This nine-year-old girl afterwards asked her mom, if Genesis doesn't mean what it says, when does God start telling the truth? <laughs> Interesting question. She, was, she just sincerely wanted to know. I've been studying for a while. I think, th I think I found the verse where it starts to get pretty good from that point on out. It's called Genesis 1-1. <laughs> from that point on out, I think you're good to go. Inspired by God, cover to cover. Again, we'll talk about that very specifically Sunday morning. So this is all about the, the ultimate authority of God's word. It's not about the subtopics of the flood or creation evolution or anything else we bring up this weekend. It all is going to point back to the authority of God's word so when you are dealing with more relevant and pertinent things like 
the transgenderism issue, which is a real issue people are dealing with. I'm not trying to downplay anything. That and everything else. You can always say, hold on a second, let me see what God has to say about that. Because it's not that God's a meanie. It's just that he created this whole universe and he's given us a lot of advice how it works best. And when we try to use it the wrong way, we run into problems. So we can help people understand why they're struggling so much with whatever issue they're bringing up. Because it wasn't how God intended it. And we can do that in a very gracious, very, very caring way rather than like, well, you're wrong and I'm right because I believe the Bible and you don't believe it. Terrible approach. If they don't see Christ in us, nothing we say is going to matter. So in a second, we'll do Q&A and you can ask anything you want, whether it's something I covered or not. I'm going to very, very quickly highlight resources we brought along. I hate selling things. One of the coolest things now is most of what we have now we're giving away free. Everything we have is available online or at our table out there, and I haven't finished setting everything up. But here's the free stuff. We have 22 streamable video sessions. We have physically, there are 11 DVDs out there. We're not selling DVDs anymore. Those are old school, so we're having to phase them out. But I brought the DVDs to sit there so you could see the titles. Some of them have multiple parts for them, so there are 22 individual sessions. They're all streamable, and they're all absolutely free. So you can go to our website and just you can get access there. You can watch them on your phone, anywhere you are in the world. I'm going to be creating probably 22 to 30 more. So we'll be doubling that in the near future, and those will just add added for free as well. We just accept donations from people, but we don't want to charge anything for the videos. So even the talk I gave tonight is out there, streamable, and the flood talk and dinosaurs in the Bible and inspiration, all that out there is free. Three weeks ago, today, we launched a podcast. So there are three episodes out now. Uh, it's a lot of fun. It's all obviously audio. You can listen to that. That's absolutely free. So take advantage of that on Spotify and, and iHeart and um, Apple, Apple Podcasts. We have a free email newsletter. You can sign up at the table or our website. comes out once a month. I have a question of the month article that I write. You can see them on the website. You can also get them through our free email newsletter. So that's also free. I've done a lot of free live stream broadcasts, which we have archived on our website. All that's absolutely free. The only thing that we sell is books because it costs us a fair amount of money to, to publish them and then get them printed. So I've got three different books. The one on creation and evolution, I've been told by some of the world's leading scientists, I think it's the best overview that's out there, which I was honored to hear. And there's faith is not a four-letter word. And then creation of Christ, the Old Testament, in a nutshell. I won't take time to explain it. That's my favorite book, actually. It's, it's kind of cool. And then our Grand Canyon tour, there's a brochure out there. If you want more information, you can also get it from our website. So with that, I've been talking a lot. We will do Q&A. I will ask the questions, and you will give me answers. <laughs> um, you can ask any question you want. We will use the mics. That will help me hear it and everyone else. I'm going to try to perform a miracle and be relatively brief with my answers so I don't go into a whole nother lecture. <laughs> used to do that. My wife would be in the back saying, you got to cut it off. So I've gotten pretty good at being short, so forgive me if I didn't give you enough detail. There are, however, a few questions that take a little longer to address, but we'll do as many as we can in a short period of time. We don't need to keep you too late and see where we are with time. It's 8.15. Technically, it goes to 9. We can finish early if we want. Everyone loves that, but we'll start out with whatever question you have, and we'll go and we'll let one of the pastors say whoever gets the last question. All right. Since I got the mic, I'm going to start with the first okay. question. Um, <laughs> This thing about this, if I'm a high schooler and someone comes to me and says, hey, I, I believe in evolution, the, con the conversation comes around, how I don't have an hour and 15 minutes to maybe start with them. What's the best way to start it without starting an argument, 
just trying to have a good conversation with them about why I would believe evolution is not true. Sure, great, great question. The best thing you can do is memorize everything that I say and just dump it on them. <laughs> no, I, I love giving things that are very practical. Tomorrow we'll talk about radiometric dating, and whoever's here, they will all understand whether they're five years old or 95 years old. I'll keep it so simple and you'll totally get it. We won't even be talking about radiometric dating. We're going to talk about something else that you all deal with every day. And once we're done, you're like, oh, now I know radiometric dating. So here's a practical answer that everyone can do. Someone brings something up. They say, oh, evolution's a fact. You know, the Bible and Christianity, it's just kind of a joke. It's outdated. I live in the real world in modern science. We cure diseases and we landed on the moon. We'll land on Mars someday and all that. Uh, it's a fact. Instead of immediately getting defensive and trying to prove your view, which I used to do that, uh, it's not very effective because then you just kind of go back and forth and no one's really listening. You're not really going to change your mind. They're not going to say, oh, I never thought about that. Let me go to church and worship Jesus. Um, so the best thing you can do is two things. And it does take a little practice. Number one, listen. Actually listen to the person you're talking to, whether it's a teacher, a professor, a friend, a neighbor, whoever it is. Listen to what they are saying. And number two, ask follow-up questions. Don't say anything about what you believe. Don't tell them they're wrong. Just ask questions. Here's an example. Someone says, well, you know, evolution is an absolute fact, and, you know, and scientists have proven this and proven that. And So instead of me saying, well, no, creation is true, and the Bible is from God and all that, I would just say, okay, I hear what you're saying, but I have a question. So before we talk about evolution, like, so like, where did everything come from? The universe. It's a pretty, pretty big universe, lots of stuff. Like in your mind, like where, where did it come from? Well, the Big Bang, you know, produced the universe. Okay, certainly heard of the Big Bang. Tell, tell me a little bit more about that. I'd like to know, know a little bit more. Like the Big Bang, it sounds like an explosion. Like what, what exploded? Now, Different people will have different levels of depth they can go, but if they know a little bit, they might say, well, there was a saying that called it the singularity, where everything in the entire known universe was squished down into a single point, and then that expanded or exploded or whatever and formed a universe. Oh, that, that's fascinating. So, so like, where did that come from? This, you, What did you call it again? The singularity? Yeah, okay. Like, So where did that come from? Well, there was a fluctuation in the quantum vacuum. Like, whoa, that, that sounds fat. Tell me more about that. That's fascinating fluctuation in a something quantum vacuum yeah where did the where did the quantum vacuum come from you push them far enough they will admit everything came from nothing now either they won't be that educated and they'll say well we're you know i'm, I'm not really sure which then you'd have to say well, okay then i guess you're taking this by faith because you someone told you that there was a quantum vacuum which you don't even know what a quantum vacuum is and it fluctuated what caused it to fluctuate where did it come from you don't know so you have faith that there was this thing that came from somewhere and you don't know where, maybe don't care, but you have faith in that, which is fine. But don't tell me it's a scientific fact when you're admitting you by faith believe that because you don't have the evidence to back that up. Now, if they say, yes, it came from nothing, which the theoretical physicists will tell you that, if you push them far enough, they will say, well, there was a point where that came from nothing. And it gets really interesting really quick. Um, Lawrence Krauss, he's one of the leading theoretical physicists today. Brilliant guy. Seriously, brilliant theoretical physicist. He's an atheist, but he's a brilliant scientist. And he had to discuss this thing, you know, how do you get this universe out of nothing? And he said, when people think of nothing, they typically think of the absence of anything. Well, 
which is true. I mean, that's what I envision nothing being. He said, but that's a philosophical definition. He goes, I don't care what the philosophers think about nothing. He said, I care about the nothing of reality. And if the nothing of reality is filled with stuff, I'll go with that. So here's one of the world's leading scientists says that nothing isn't nothing. It's filled with stuff. And then he uses the stuff to create a singularity, to create the universe. That's not science. That's nonsense. That's even bad philosophy. But because he's a scientist, we're impressed when they say that. It's like, no. So the short answer is when someone makes a claim, evolution's a fact. Okay, uh, how do you know it's a fact? Well, it's proven by evidence from every area of science. Can you give me a few examples? Well, there's tons of it. I don't need tons. Just I, one or two would help me because I, I want to know, know better. Well, there's tons of it. Like, okay, can you give me an example or two? Well, there's whole books written about it. Go get a book. Okay, so you're telling me you believe in evolution and there's evidence for it. You don't know what it is, but you think it's in books somewhere and you're telling me to go find it. Which again, they're expressing their faith. They, they cannot defend it. You want to do that very tactfully and graciously and in all, in all sincerity. All you do is you ask enough follow-up questions and very quickly they will get to a point where they realize they cannot back up the claims they made. And you haven't said anything about what you believe. You're not even telling them that they're wrong. You're just trying to better understand these very bold claims they're making. Evolution is a fact. The universe came from a big bang or nothing produced something. Whatever it is that they're claiming... Ask them, how did you come to that conclusion? How do you know it's true? You keep doing that sincerely, and they will realize they're in a pretty weak position. If you don't do that, you get defensive right away. The whole conversation is going to be on you and the Bible and the evil in the world today and the different Bible versions and all that. And then you, they don't even have to address how do you get something out of nothing. So just you know, listen, because you really want to learn what they believe and how they got to that point and why do they think it's true. Great question. That's good. I know what the quantum vacuum is. It's our high school guys on Sunday mornings when we have donuts. <laughs> All right, we got a question? All right, I see one here. And the, the speaker is echoing just enough up here, so I might have a hard time hearing what it is, but go ahead. So this is kind of a follow-up question to what Lee asked, but um, you know, Jesus was good at kind of asking the questions or saying the things that get at the sort of the issues beneath the issues. And so when you're having a conversation with someone, do you have kind of a, a favorite question to sort of like get to the heart of the person and perhaps, you know, why they are um, at getting them maybe to think about why they might be even inclined to be, you know, attracted to evolution? Um, do you ever kind of go that, that, uh, that direction in a conversation? Sure. Um, so many things come to mind right away. Let me give you a, a really quick real-life example. I was lecturing over in London and in Oxford last August, and I was at a conference over there too, and one of the other speakers at the conference was an evangelist from uh, Northern Ireland. And I know him because I've been there three times now and I met him before. Great guy. He's not a scientist. He's an evangelist. But he was sharing a story. He was witnessing to a guy who happened to be a nuclear physicist, brilliant scientist. And the scientist was also an atheist, and all the evangelists was witnessing to this atheistic nuclear physicist. And the nuclear physicist told the evangelist, he goes, I don't believe that God exists. And the evangelist said, no, you know God exists, but you hate him. You love your sin, and you fear God's wrath. The nuclear physicist looked at the evangelist in the eye and said, you 
are the wisest man I have ever met. He's like, you got me. That's what it is. It's not the scientific evidence or anything. I don't want God to exist. I want to do whatever I want to do. It's a heart issue. And this is what it really comes down to. So when I talk to skeptics, I try to shortcut it a bit and get to that issue sooner than just debating facts and things like that because all facts have to be interpreted, right? And so if I just throw facts out there and say, see, this proves my view. No, it doesn't prove my view. It might be very supportive of it, but they're going to look at it differently, come up with a different interpretation. So we shouldn't really debate the facts so much. We should say, wait a minute, what are you using for your interpretation? Because if that's faulty, you're not going to want to use it. You're going to come to the wrong conclusions. So I get them to realize they have a starting point. They have something they use to then interpret everything else. So one question I would ask them early on is, hold on a second, you have opinions about a lot of things. You have opinions about the origin of the universe, about evolution, about transgenderism, all these things. They've got opinions, strong opinions about those. Say, what source of authority do you turn to to come to your conclusions? When someone says that you know, these two guys should be able to get married, and you say, yeah, they have that right. What source of authority did you just now turn to to reach that conclusion that it is okay versus it's not okay? And they will generally say, well, that's just what I feel. You know, I feel that they have a right. Oh, so you, you feel that's what you think. You came to that conclusion that they should have that right. Okay, what about this person over here? Neither of us know that person. They might have a different opinion. Do we go with their opinion or yours? You just keep going and then they realize there's no ultimate basis for the opinion that they're sharing right now. So instead of talking about gay marriage, you talk about what source of authority do you continually turn to to come up with those conclusions. And let me share this really quickly. It's not part of one of my talks, but I think it will be really helpful to everyone here. Because I could come the whole weekend and give you science after science after science after science, and you're going to forget most of it because you just you can't remember everything. It's really cool. You walk away thinking, that was really cool. Don't remember any of it, but it was kind of worthwhile. It was fun. Trivia. Entertaining. I don't want to do that. So more important than the science I'm going to share, I'm going to share some super cool stuff while I'm here. Think of it this way. This is a new approach that I just started using. I want to kind of flesh it out more. When I talk specifically with an atheist, and this, kind of, this is going towards the question you're asking, when I talk to an atheist, I tell the atheist, I'm a Christian, and that means that I, I believe the Bible, um, which means I kind of have to live in a box meaning whatever the Bible says, I have to go with. If I don't, you, the atheist, can call me out for being inconsistent, being a hypocrite, that, oh, I believe this part, but not that part, and you know, pick and choose. So I'm kind of constrained. I have to live in a box. They get that. That's logical. It makes perfect sense. I'm just talking about where I'm coming from. So they're okay with that. And I said, because of that, I have a couple options in approaching you and having a discussion with you right now. I can either try to psychoanalyze you to figure out like where you're coming from, or I could see if there's anything in here, God's Word, that would help me better understand your position. And I said, actually, there, there's quite a bit in here that does address that issue. And then I would tell them, Romans 1, usually I wouldn't necessarily have a Bible with me at the time, so I'm just telling them, there's a book called Romans, uh, and in Romans, the first chapter, Paul, who penned that, stated that God has put so much evidence just in nature we're not talking about quoting you know, verses at this point or Jesus. Saying, we're just saying God has put so much evidence just in his physical creation 
that people are without excuse. No one is ever going to be able to stand before God and say, I would have believed in you, but you didn't give me enough evidence. God said, oh no, I gave you tons of evidence. And it goes on to say that God himself has put the knowledge of his existence inside every single human being. I said, because of that, I have to believe you know God exists. That's when they get upset. I don't believe that God exists. I said, I I get that. I understand that you're telling me that, but I am forced to believe you know God exists because that's what this says. If I don't believe that, you can call me out for being inconsistent. So I don't have a choice. I have to believe you know God exists because that's what it says. Now, it says that some people that God has given this information to, they've chosen to reject it. Not because of their superior intellect, because of their heart issue. They don't want it to be true. And God says, okay, you know, I'm not going to force you to believe in me, but if you do reject me, there, there are consequences. And then the rest of the chapter describes the consequences. They reject all that evidence. God gives them over to darkened thinking, a reprobate mind. Romans 1.22, professing themselves to be wise, they have become fools. That is not name-calling by God. He's not saying, oh, they're just fools. He's describing their thinking process. They will not be able to think clear anymore because they've rejected all this evidence. And I said, because of that, I don't think for one second, if I tell you everything I know about DNA, which you'll hear tomorrow morning if you come back, if I tell you, the skeptic, the atheist, everything I know about DNA, that that's going to really have any effect on you because we're dealing with a spiritual issue, a heart issue. And until you're ready to humble yourself and say, you know what, maybe there is a creator, maybe I don't know everything, until you're ready to do that, we're not really going to get anywhere because this is a heart issue. Then I would tell them, given that, how would you like to proceed? And they're like a deer in the headlights. They want to debate all the science stuff. And I'm saying, that's not where it's at. This is a heart issue. And what's interesting is right then, they're, they're just squirming. And then I'm thinking, if, if there's no God and you're just particles, why are you so internally upset right now? If you're just particles, it makes much more sense There is a God. You are created in his image and the spirit he has put inside of you, you are fighting that right now. And that's what you're sensing. That makes perfect sense to me, but to you, if you're just particles, hey, why be bothered at all about any of this? I'm skipping another story for now. I talked to an atheist. He was the head of the Atheist Association in San Diego for three and a half hours. I wish I had time for the story. We had such a good time talking. He's a smart guy, really smart and nice Half an hour into it, he goes, I, I wish we could do this every day. He said, yeah, but I live in the Milwaukee area. You live in San Diego. We had a really good time. And all I did is I asked him follow-up questions. I didn't try to defend what I believed at all. I told him ahead of time, I'm not coming to defend Christianity. You know what Christianity is. You debate Christians all the time. I want to get to know you. But I took him down a certain path where what you do is you temporarily assume the skeptic is correct in their views. You just give them that. So let's just say you're right. But if you're right, that means this. And it means that, it would lead to that. These things are just absurd, but they realize these are natural consequences of what they say they're believing. So now they either have to live with these absurd consequences or they have to start thinking, maybe there's something wrong with what I believe. So that's an approach that I use is I just try to find out what is your source of authority that you're using to come up with these conclusions. And I personally believe because of scripture, this is a spiritual issue. And if you don't want to deal with that at all, I, you know, I'm not sure I want to spend any time talking about the science stuff because I don't think it's going to go anywhere. And again, you want to do it tactfully and graciously. Another question.
And while we're waiting for that question, I will be in the lobby a little bit afterwards too if you have questions. I know when, when I'm in the audience, I don't even want to raise my hand. I don't want people looking at me or hearing my questions. So I'm w welcome to take questions afterwards too. So where did all the water go after the flood? <laughs> good, <laughs> good question. Uh, the hippos drink it all. Next question. It's, this is an interesting question. I have a top 10 question DVD, which is streamable for free, but that's one of the top 10 questions. Is where did all the water go after the flood? And it's one of those things that not only does a skeptic use that to make fun of the Bible, but it's one of those things that most Christians don't really know an answer to. They haven't thought about it much, or maybe even worse, and parents are always very well-meaning with this, but their children might ask them a question like that, and then they might say, well, you know what? God might have, like, he breathed on the earth and kind of evaporated it because God's all-powerful. And the kids are like, oh, yeah, God's all-powerful. He could do that. So now they think that's where the water went after the flood. God just kind of breathed on it and evaporated. It's like, I don't see that in here. <laughs> God could. I mean, he's all-powerful, but there's nothing in here that indicates that. In fact, there's stuff in here that indicates what happened to it. So we should learn. And if you don't know, you should say, you know what, great question. Let's see if there's anything in the Bible that would help us better understand that. You know, show some humility that you don't know and teach them that you always want to turn to God's Word to see if it says anything. This is an important point. If you bring up a topic and the Bible doesn't say anything about it whatsoever, like the mass of an electron, 9.1 times 10 to the negative 31st kilograms, uh, if that's what they tell you it is, you can believe that. There's nothing in here that tells you it can't be. So if the Bible doesn't address it at all, you're free to conclude whatever you want. But if the Bible says something, that's got to be your starting point. You want to know who the first man was? We only have one option, Adam. 1 Corinthians 15.45, Adam was the first man in Genesis 1 and 2. If you want to know how tall he was, the Bible doesn't tell us. I'm guessing 6'3", <laughs> but uh, we don't know. So we have some flexibility there. So with this question, what happened to the water after the flood? I would always first go to Scripture before I'd even think it through scientifically, because this is the inspired Word of God. Our scientific conclusions are tentative and we change our minds when we learn new information. So the Bible says at one point the entire earth was covered with water. All the high hills, about 22 and a half feet deep. And you look at the cubits and all that, that listed. So the entire earth was covered with water according to scripture. When you read Genesis 6 through 8, it's literal historical narrative. It's not, a, not poetic. It's telling us what happened. There's a lot of detail. So at one point, all the high hills under the whole heaven were covered, even Mount Everest. Now, it is physically impossible to cover the entire earth today. Mount Everest is five and a half miles high. You can't cover it. See, it's a silly story, right? Guess what? There are sea creatures on top of Mount Everest. How is that possible? You get some clam getting sick. I'm going to work my way up to the top of Mount Everest and hope I survive the whole way. And when I get up there, I hope to get buried rapidly because rapidly, that's the only way to fossilize. And I don't want to die here in the ocean with all my friends. No. The mountains were lower in the past. So we had Mount Everest, but not five and a half miles high. It was covered with water, sediments being buried on it, sea creatures on top of Mount Everest. And at the end of the flood, Psalm 104, God caused the mountains to rise up even higher, catastrophically, not slowly over millions of years, catastrophically, catastrophic plate tectonics, and the valleys or the trenches and ocean basins to sink lower. The ocean basin, even secular geologists think, has sunk down one mile, meaning it was pushed up a mile during the flood. What would that do? That would push 
seawater onto the continent. That's why you have sea sediments everywhere. In Utah National Monument, where this, all these dinosaurs are, there's one cliff exposed, 1,500 dinosaur bones. You can walk right up to them and touch them. It's really cool. You know what? There are more clam fossils with those dinosaur bones than anything else. How do you have sea creatures buried with dinosaurs unless you have seawater coming onto the, onto the continent? So the, water, the earth gets flooded. Psalm 104, the mountains rise up. That's going to cause the water to catastrophically rush off back into the oceans. The ocean basins are sinking down. Mariana Trench, 6.8 miles deep. Why did God do that? Well, to get it off the continent. And number two, to commit to his promise. He said he would never do that again, Genesis chapter 9. Never again will the waters return to flood the earth. Guess what? It's physically impossible now. Because the mountains are too high and the valleys are too low. God did that on purpose to set a boundary so that they can't do that anymore. One other quick thing, uh, secular scientists say, oh, there couldn't have been a worldwide flood. That's impossible to flood the whole planet. If you took the earth and lowered the mountains and brought the ocean basins up, made it smooth like a cue ball, there's enough water just in the oceans to cover the earth 1.7 miles deep. That's a lot of water. And guess what? Secular scientists think there's three times that much water in the oceans in the layers of the earth now. So there's enough water in just the oceans to cover it if you, you know, level things out. Now we've discovered probably three times that much water in the layers of the earth and the great fountains of the deep. That's how the flood started. Water was coming from it in the earth. Wasn't that just rain for 40 days and 40 nights? That's a, a silly way of looking at the Bible. It was just a portion of it, but the great fountains of the deep broken up, water coming up from within the earth and all that. So when you look at the actual description, you find out what actually happened. It wasn't just rain that flooded it, and then it kind of got evaporated away by God. God tells us it went back into the oceans. If any of you had coffee today, juice, or water, you're drinking flood water because it's just it's all over. It's in the oceans and the lakes and all that circulates through. So, But great question, and the main teaching point there is whatever question comes up, we should first say, well, hold on, let's see if there's anything in here. If not, then we can go somewhere else. But if there is, we need to start with that and then look at some of the science things and see how that would fit in. So, great question. My answers are longer than normal again. I can't help it, sorry. <laughs> um, as Christians, we all believe through faith that uh, God created everything. How do you respond to somebody who says, that's all well and good, but who made God? Who made God? Excellent question. I, uh, I'm going to be addressing that in my next podcast. Um, I just finished... Uh, four-part series on the origin of the universe, keeping it really simple. It's, it's kind of an interesting podcast. And I wasn't sure what I was going to do for the next episode. One, one possibility is going to talk about the existence of God. The other possibility, I shouldn't say this publicly because maybe I'm committed to it then, I'm praying about this, but that atheist that I talked to for three hours, I just told you that story, I'm thinking of contacting him and seeing if he'll do a podcast with me. It won't even be a debate. I want to give him space to come on and tell everyone about himself, how he was raised, how he became an atheist. I know part of that story because he shared it with me. Just let him explain that and let him define atheism and what true atheists believe. And there are different versions and the difference between atheism and agnosticism and all of those things. And I'm not going to be debating. I'm not, well, that's wrong. And Christians, no, no, no. Just let him define, let him lay it all out and then ask questions like too. Like, so as an atheist, where, where do you derive your sense of morality? what drives you in life, what makes you passionate about doing whatever, since there's no God and everything's just particles. I just ask him, like, so where do you get your motivation to clean up the rivers or to save the spotted owl or whatever? I mean, what, 
what drives that if there's no God and you die and then that's it and then the universe will have a heat death or whatever. Just, you know, ask him innocently so they can describe, you know, his thoughts on that. And that'll be the show. And in the future, I will address atheism and then I will occasionally say, hey, you know, when we had Sean on, that was just so awesome. And he came on, he's a great guy. He mentioned this about atheism. So what do we think? What would a Christian say to that? And then I'll just talk about that topic. I won't say, oh, Sean said this. Like, no, I... I would be honored that he'd be on the program and I would have him fully know that's how it's going to go and in the future I'm not going to be deriding him but I'll be mentioning and that way I'll be working with a true definition of atheism rather than being accused of, well, that's what you say about atheists but that's not what they believe. It's like, no, we brought one of the leading guys on to talk about that. So anyway, back to the question, who created God? Excellent, excellent question. There's something called the Kalam Cosmological argument. Kalam, K-L-A-M, K-A-L-A-M, Kalam, cosmological argument. And this is how it goes. It's called a syllogism where there's a major premise, a minor premise, and a conclusion. It's three things. It says everything that begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist. Therefore, the universe has a cause. That should make a lot of sense. Anything that comes into being must have a cause. Something must have caused it to come into being. Well, the secular scientists believe the universe had a beginning. They don't believe it's eternal. They used to a long time ago, but now they agree it had a beginning. So if everything that comes into existence has a cause, and the universe came into existence, the universe must have a cause. What caused it? That leaves out that option. You can't say nothing, because nothing is nothing but nothing. That's why we call it nothing. There must have been something that caused the universe. That makes so much sense. Well, we as Christians say, yeah, we know who caused it. God caused it. He even told us, you know, he said right here, that's what he did. So that's what we believe. So then that begs the question, well, who caused God? If everything needs a cause, who caused God? Who created God? And that's where I say, wait a minute. You didn't quite hear what I had to say. Everything that begins to exist must have a cause. I didn't say everything must have a cause. Everything that begins to exist must have a cause. God did not begin to exist. He has always existed. Psalm 90, verse 2, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God, and other verses. The Bible tells us that's one of God's attributes, is he's eternal. Not only is he here now and he's going to last forever into the future, you go back the other way, as far back as you want to go, he's just always, always, always here. We can't mentally grasp that, but that's what he's told us about himself. Now, if you tell a skeptic, well, God has always existed and he created the universe and that's what the Bible says, you'll say, I don't believe that Bible thing. So what I would say is, you know what, you should and there are many reasons to, but let's just temporarily put this aside. Let's forget that we even know the Bible says that. Let's just think about this, God existing forever, logically. And this is the way I would look at it, just logically. If there was, this, you really got to think on this one. If there was ever a point in the past, you want to go back a hundred years, a thousand, a million, a billion, trillion, gazillion, whatever, any point in the past, if there was ever a point in the past when absolutely nothing existed, and I mean nothing, don't say, well, maybe this, no, absolutely nothing. If there was ever a point in the past where absolutely nothing existed, what would be here today? Nothing. Because if there was a point when nothing existed at all, no time, space, energy, matter, spirit, nothing, 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 you can't do anything. There's no time within it could operate, just nothing. It's going to be that, in a sense, forever. 
Logic, this is just logic. You can't argue with that. Well, there is something here today. There's a whole universe. We're here. So logically, you should be able to conclude, I guess there never, ever was a time in the past when absolutely nothing existed. There always had to be something. That's just logically. I talk to atheists, I talk to skeptics, and they cannot argue with that logic. We have just concluded logically, apart from Scripture, logically, there must have always been something in existence. Well, that's really vague, something. We have two options of what that something might have been. Everything you could possibly think of right now, whatever you might think of, is going to fall into one of two categories. It's either physical stuff, matter and energy, and matter and energy can be interchanged, E equals mc squared. It's kind of the same stuff, just different forms. So everything's physical stuff, matter and energy, or mind. If I told you my favorite color was teal, that's a concept product of my mind. You can't take that into a laboratory and chop that up into five pieces and give each one of your friends a fifth of the fact that my favorite color is teal. That's a, something that it's an abstract that comes from my mind. So everything you could possibly think of is either going to be a physical thing or mind. Those are our two options. Okay, we know something has always existed. It's got to be one of those two. Well, okay, how about this physical stuff? Well, scientists tell us physical stuff could not have always existed. Why? Primarily because something we call the second law of thermodynamics. The first and second laws of thermodynamics are probably the two best laws we have in science. First law basically says you can't get something out of nothing. The second law says when you do have something, its usefulness for work goes downhill. It gets less and less and less useful over time. Things are kind of running downhill over time. If physical stuff like this universe had been around forever, it would have run out of gas a long time ago. There'd be no energy left in our universe. We got our sun 93 million miles away, full of energy. There's a lot of energy in order. We call this the cosmos. That means order. There's a lot of order and energy in our universe. So secular scientists know the universe, the physical stuff, could not be eternal. It cannot have always existed. Well, if we know something always existed, but it can't be the physical stuff, our only other option is mind. And that's the whole idea of God. God is a spirit. He is not a physical being. He created physical stuff, but he himself is a spirit being like a mind. And so the Bible tells us that God has always existed. And when you look at science and logic, backs it up perfectly. So it makes so much sense. You know, if God created the universe, who created God? It's really the wrong question for Christians to ask because the Bible tells us God has always existed so we shouldn't be asking, well, wait a minute, God, where'd you come from? He's saying, you missed it. I have always existed. But it's a natural question to think of, especially for skeptics. And we should then be saying, the Bible says that God has always existed. And when you look at it logically, there always had to be something, but it can't be physical stuff. So it's got to be this non-physical thing, which is what the Bible's saying. Non-physical spirit has just always existed. So kind of a, a cool way of looking at it, very powerful you're not asking someone to just, just trust me, just believe it in your heart. No, it's like, really, think through this. You know, Romans 12, 2 does not say, be ye transformed by the removal of your mind. It says, be transformed by the renewal of your mind. God wants us to use the minds that we have. So we'll take maybe one last question, and then I'll, I'll wind down, because I don't want to torture you, or no one's going to come back tomorrow. I wanted to get your thoughts on why were people uh, uh, living longer uh, back in the, before Christ? 
didn't quite catch the front something about people before Christ? Yeah, li- living longer. Oh, living longer, sure. Um, trying to think of a short answer here. When you look at Scripture and you see the ages, you know, Adam lived, what, 969 years, you know, 930 years, Noah 950, Methuselah 969 years. Um, people struggle with that. It's like, that's impossible. It's crazy. Maybe those weren't years, those were months. We convert them into months, and now you got people having children when they're four years old or whatever. It's just like, no. It says years. It's, it's historical. It's recorded. This is how long they lived. Genetically, there's really not an issue with that. Scientists don't fully understand aging, but it has to do with something called telomeres. On the end of our chromosomes, there's these little stringy things called telomeres, and every time a cell copies itself, they get hacked off a little bit. They're a little bit shortened. So the cell can only copy itself so many times, and then it's done. And it's actually a good thing because these cells can accumulate mutations, copying errors. You don't want them to keep going and going and going. I mean, we would be extinct by now. That's one of the problems with cancer. They're bad, and they just keep copying and copying and copying. If they died off, they'd be much better. But they happen to get by dying off, and it's why we're still dealing with cancer. So a number of things. God could easily have created Adam and Eve with differences with their telomeres and things like that that would genetically allow them to live a lot longer. Plus, they didn't have what we call the genetic load that we have today. Genetic load just means how many mutations or mistakes we have in our DNA. Every time we reproduce today, we add about at least 100 more mistakes to our DNA. So my parents had a bunch of mistakes in their DNA. And when they had me, they copied their DNA and gave it to me. So now I got their regular DNA and all their mistakes, but then they were nice enough to add an extra 100. Then my wife and I took our parents' DNA and all the mistakes in the extra 100, and then we passed it on to our kids, copied those mistakes, and then we threw in another 100, and our kids still to this day have not said thank you. Um, But it, you know, I think I'll, I'll quote it tomorrow. One Russian scientist said, how come we haven't died 100 times over? If we've been evolving for 6 million years and we keep adding these mistakes and it can't be stopped for many reasons, we shouldn't be alive anymore. We should have gone extinct a long, 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 long time ago. Now, if we haven't been around as long, we could tolerate the mistakes that we've accumulated so far. But Adam and Eve were perfect. Cain and Abel were perfect. Their DNA probably didn't have any copying errors in it. But at some point, you know, a few copying errors started creeping in. So you get about 1,700 years after Adam and Eve. That's the time of the flood. Things were so bad, God says, that's it. I'm judging this planet. I'm sending a worldwide flood in judgment to wipe them out. And there's a whole four-part series on that that I'm not covering this weekend. But So you got all these people living a long time. So you, you got all these ages, 900 years. Then you hit the flood. And if you graph it, all of a sudden it goes like this. And it follows this like exponential type curve. It's fascinating. So, think about this. It's better with the graphic up there. But the Bible, it's written a long time ago, roughly 1500 BC to about 100 AD, long before we had modern science. Again, we'll talk about that Sunday morning. So, this is written a long time ago. It's pre scientific in a sense. But now you look at the ages and you plot them, and they're going like this, like this, like this. The flood occurs, and all of a sudden they go down like this, and it curves off to today, 70, 80, 90 years. That matches perfectly a genetic decay curve. That When we study genetics today, that's exactly what we would expect from all these mutations that we're seeing. We didn't have that prior to the flood for a number of reasons, but when the flood came, it was God's judgment on mankind, and God says, you ain't going to live as long anymore. Look how much trouble you get into when you're living that long. So he 
purposely shortened man's uh, lifespan, and it, I think he did that largely through genetics and through with the genetic mutation and the genetic load that we're seeing, how we're, our lifespan kind of went down like this. It perfectly matches the years that are given in the Bible. So you either have to think that Moses tried to force a genetic decay curve into what he was writing, or he was actually just writing the ages of people. And that's really how long they live, and it makes perfect sense because of the flood and all that. It's, to me, it's just fascinating that this is so scientifically accurate, even to genetics, and I don't have time to go into it, but we know the silly story of Adam and Eve, right, that we all came from one male and one female. I mean, who, who would believe that? Secular scientists do. Really. They believe we have all come from one male and one female. Wait a minute, that sounds too much like the Bible. They don't want to believe the Bible. Why would they say that? Because by studying the genetics, that's the conclusion they're coming to. When you study the Y chromosome, i got to end with this because I'm gone forever. Males are the only ones that have a Y chromosome. So by studying the Y chromosome all over the planet, they can tell it must have all come from one copy. One was copied and then distributed to everyone else. They can tell that. So they'll make up a story, okay, yeah, it did come from one male, but there, there were probably other males who you know, had evolved, but none of them then passed on their Y chromosome, only the one did. Like, well, how does that work? Um, but so they believe that we have all come from one single male. Similarly, mitochondrial DNA. These are little loops of DNA that are in the mitochondria, the powerhouse of the cell. Only females pass that on. So by studying the mitochondrial DNA around the planet, they can tell it's all come from one female. A copy was passed on. The other ones didn't pass on. No, I don't think there were other ones. I think they're Adam and Eve. But the secular stories, they've got to get something so it doesn't sound like the Bible. But they do believe one male and one female. And for a long time, they were saying, yeah, but this isn't Adam and Eve because this couple didn't even live at the same time. They lived tens of thousands of years apart, they said. They studied it further. Surprise, it looks like this male and female lived at the same time after all. Yeah, just like this says. And the last thing related to that, and I will close in prayer, um, the ark. What, eight people on it? Noah and his wife, Joan of Arc, and then their three sons. <laughs> three sons and three wives. Um, they get saved with two of each kind of animal, and they come off the ark, and then they repopulate. The, you know that the, we just hit the population level of eight billion people you know, a month ago or so? Can you get eight billion people starting with just three couples coming off that ark four and a half thousand years ago? That's crazy. It's not crazy at all. I'm going to skip the population details behind that. It fits in perfectly, but here's what I want to say. When they studied the genetics of people all over the planet, um, there's an issue. They, they expected the DNA to show this great diversity. If we've been evolving from an ape-like creature for six million years, as it copies, it gets diversified. So now, here we are six million years later, the DNA should just be kind of widespread. But guess what? It's really closely related. That shocked them when they saw that. So they said, oh, okay, well, this is what happened. You see, we have been evolving, and it got really, really wide. But not too long ago, almost everyone on the planet was wiped out, and just a small group of people survived to repopulate the planet. And it hasn't been very long, so it hasn't had time to get wide again. Why does that story sound familiar? Oh yeah, four and a half thousand years ago, worldwide flood. You have three couples coming off the ark to repopulate the earth. And guess what? When you look at the genetics that are closely related across the planet, you can categorize them into three major chunks. Huh, why would that? Oh yeah, three sons and three wives. 
as they diversify, they form these three larger groups, which we're seeing through genetics, which is what the Bible said a long time ago when we didn't have genetics. So anytime there's a conflict between scientists' opinions and the Bible, be patient with the scientists. They'll eventually catch up to God's Word. Um, just cool stuff. And, and again, we're scratching the surface. I want you to go away not remembering the details I shared. It's totally fine to forget all of them. Just go away saying, all I know is I can really, really, really trust this. And then you want to use all that information to go out and win arguments with people and make them look foolish. No. You want to use your being fired up to go out and share the gospel message with people very graciously, knowing if they bring up tough questions about ape men and carbon-14 dating and all the evil in the world today and, and all the weird dietary laws and people living 900 years, you know there are answers. Even if you don't remember them, you could say, you know what, I know there are answers, I'll get back to you. And there's a lot more advice I could give, but I'm going to wrap it up with that. So I will close in a word of prayer. I'll be hanging out in the lobby. If you have questions, you can also go to our website and ask questions anytime you want. But please do not come back tomorrow morning alone. <laughs> bring, bring somebody. Seriously, bring a skeptic. Bring an atheist. I'm always terribly honored that a skeptic or an atheist would show up. And they can ask any question they want. We're going to be doing two talks with some Q&A tomorrow. First talk is... Uh, evolution probable or problematic that's what i'm going to tell you about this dna stuff that will blow you away it is so unbelievably cool i've given the talk a lot i have yet to have a single skeptic ever address anything i share they'll talk about the evil in the world today what about different bible versions they i said well hold on what about the i just gave a lecture can you comment on like what's wrong with what i said is there they won't even talk about it because there's nothing that can be said it's, it's, so, it's easy to understand, very powerful. I'm getting that talk, and then the second talk will be creation in six days. We'll get into the whole controversial topic of the age of the earth and all that very tactfully and do some Q&A. So, and then Sunday morning, again, is going to be scientific evidence for the inspiration of the Bible. So I will close in a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, just thank you so much for this time that we've had to take a look at ultimately the authority of your word. I thank you for each person taking time out of their busy schedule to be here. I pray again that they would be greatly uh, encouraged and strengthened in their faith and that you would give them opportunities to share the gospel message with a lost and dying world. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.